0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, if you're hungry for a pepperoni roll in West Virginia, you can find one at just about any gas station. So how did they get so popular? Kanawha County
1: Schools is where we, we learned about pepperoni rolls, essentially. You started seeing them pop up in gas stations after that.
0: And the lure of one particular sweet treat helps keep hikers moving on the Appalachian Trail.
2: It feels like a part of the trail. Like, I wouldn't skip a 10-mile section. I wouldn't skip the half gallon
0: of ice cream. We also spill the tea on a classic roadside attraction.
3: I think that it's just pretty cool that we're the first and only people ever to get married in front of the world's largest teapot.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by the West Virginia Higher Education Policy Commission, presenting Appalachian Care Chronicles, a podcast sharing the stories of folks working in every corner of West Virginia's health sector. Season one can be heard at AppalachianCareChronicles.com. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com.
0: Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today we're talking about food. We start with a visit from one of our Folkways reporters. Zach Harold, Inside Appalachia's resident foodie. What brings you on the show today?
5: This will come as no surprise to anybody, but I have been thinking deep thoughts about another iconic West Virginia food, uh, particularly pepperoni rolls. A lot of ink has been spilled about pepperoni rolls. Uh, Tell me, Mason, what what was your first experience with
0: it? It's funny you ask because I remember pretty clearly it was when I used to referee roller derby. And I'd run up and down the eastern seaboard and even to the Midwest to referee bouts all over the place. And I learned pretty quick that um, you can spend a lot of money on traveling, especially on food, but a good hack is to stop at the grocery stores along the way and check out what they got in their deli. And I quickly discovered that a lot of places in western Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, ...would carry pepperoni rolls in the grocery store, and they were inexpensive and they kept well, which made it perfect for a traveling roller derby ref.
5: See, that is the original appeal of a pepperoni roll, right? It was invented in north-central West Virginia um, by coal miners' families to have a handy lunch and an affordable lunch to take down into the mines with them. So what I'm interested in, though is by this point, obviously, you know, you're running all over and finding pepperoni rolls. They've become ubiquitous, not just in West Virginia, but in surrounding states, too. But I'm trying to figure out how they got from their origins in north-central West Virginia to becoming this regional favorite. And I think I might have found a window into that aspect of the pepperoni roll story.
0: Really? So this ubiquitous food that's beloved across Appalachia, you found the missing link. Well,
5: it comes back to the school lunch rooms in Kanawha County, West Virginia, where some people say they got their pepperoni roll education. Tell me more. Let's uh, roll the tape.
6: This is um, warm water and yeast. It's
5: 730 in the morning here in the kitchen at Horace Mann Middle School in Charleston, West Virginia. Breakfast is wrapped up, but lunch is already heavy on everyone's minds. There's a lot of cooking to do between then and now. Food services coordinator Lori Lanier is showing me how to make Canal County Schools famous pepperoni rolls. It starts, as all pepperoni rolls do, with the dough. But not just any dough. That's one secret of the Canal School's pepperoni roll. They're made using the same recipe as those beloved soft and sweet hot rolls that accompany every school Thanksgiving dinner and Salisbury steak. I
7: don't care how many times you make them. Sometimes you may have a, a pinch more flour or a pinch less flour. You just have to watch the consistency because it's all one, how the flour was sifted.
5: It will take several batches of dough to make enough rolls for the whole school. And each batch has to raise about a half an hour before the process can continue.
3: Um, Don't y'all pour it out and separate things so it can raise? Yes, is that what you want? Yes, please.
5: Please. After the dough is raised, you still got to fill giant sheet pans with rolls that are individually stuffed and shaped. Bake them for about 15 minutes and brush them with melted butter. Cooks will tell you this is one of the most time consuming lunches to prepare. A lot of schools shift pepperoni roll day to the end of the week so they can work on the rolls a few days in advance. Horace Mann made half of their rolls the day before I visited storing them in the walk-in cooler until it was time to pop them in the oven. But there's a good reason they go to all this trouble. These pepperoni rolls are beloved in a way no other school lunch is. My friend and former coworker Whitney Humphrey is 34 and graduated from Riverside High School in 2007.
3: On pepperoni roll days, like the teachers would let you out like 5 or 10 minutes early so that you could get to the cafeteria because there was always such a long line because even kids who typically didn't eat school lunch, would eat lunch on pepperoni roll day.
5: It was the same thing at Capitol High School, where Brittany Kerouich graduated in 2006.
3: We would always try to talk our teachers into letting us like, in class at the door so we could run all the way across the courtyard and be first in line for the pepperoni rolls, because they're so good.
5: And Brittany couldn't even really eat pepperoni rolls.
3: I actually am allergic to pepperoni. So, But I still love the pepperoni rolls, and so I would unroll them, take the line of pepperoni out, hand it to all my friends, roll it back up, and eat it because it had the cheese in it still, and it was just delicious cheesy bread at that point.
5: Tom Bragg also worked with me at the late, great Charleston Daily Mail. He's a Nitro high school grad, and he loved pepperoni rolls so much that it kind of turned him into a scam artist.
1: 20 years ago when I was in school, you were assigned a lunch number. It wasn't like a scan card or a barcode. They told you he's your three-digit or four-digit number, whatever it is. Don't forget it. But what we realized is that they were assigned alphabetically in numerical order. And I started thinking one day on pepperoni roll day, I was like, my best friend who just, we weren't related, but happened to have the same last name. But my best friend always brought his lunch or would skip school and go go get lunch somewhere else. And I was like, man, he's not taking advantage of pepperoni roll day here. And his number is one before mine. So I'm just going to go back through line and get a second pepperoni roll day. And my scheme worked great. And It was, wasn't some random kid. It was my best friend. We were at his house and the lunch bill came. And his mom's like, dude, I thought you didn't eat lunch at school. She goes, yeah, I, I don't eat lunch at school. And I started giggling. We were close enough that it was a funny thing. She was like, oh, Tommy, you owe me $10 for the pepperoni rolls you ate last month. And we paid her. It was all good.
5: Now, this probably comes as no surprise, right? Pepperoni rolls at this point are an iconic West Virginia food invented in the north-central part of the state by Italian immigrants who wanted a portable lunch to take into the coal mines. We all know the story. But I would challenge any West Virginian who doesn't live within an hour's drive of Clarksburg. Cast your mind back about 20 or 30 years. Just how prevalent were pepperoni rolls in your day-to-day life back then? I mean, I went to school in Boone County, one county away from Kanawha County, And we never had pepperoni rolls on the school menu. And I've pulled folks around my age who grew up in other neighboring counties. Putnam, Lincoln, Jackson, Logan, Clay, Nicholas. None of them had pepperoni rolls on their school lunch trays either. And even my Kanawha County friends, who enjoyed pepperoni rolls at school, didn't have many memories of them outside the lunchroom.
1: School, Kanawha County schools is where... We, we learned about pepperoni rolls, essentially. You started seeing them pop up in gas stations after
5: that. So here's what I decided to figure out. How did pepperoni rolls catch on in Kanawha County Schools hours away from where the dish was born and years before it became a statewide phenomenon?
8: I mean, it became kind of a quest with you.
5: <laughs> That's Diane Miller, Kanawha County Schools Director of Child Nutrition, Once she heard about my little research project, she started fishing around herself. There's apparently no paper record of Pepperoni Roll's first appearance. No archive of school menus that we could dig into. So she had to go off people's memories. She talked with canal Superintendent and folks from the State Department of Education. She even found some retired school cooks and picked their brains.
8: They believe that it, it started between 1992 and 94 but we, in Kanawha County, can get it back to 97, 98.
5: In doing so, she discovered a possible origin story.
8: They ran out of the sub buns. They were making their own pizza breads, and they ran out, and they didn't know what else to do, so they decided that, you know, that they would make, they had rolled dough for the next day, and so they just put them together, as they had had pepperoni rolls with their um, families that were working in the mines.
5: I asked Diane to connect me with a school cook who might know some of the history, and that's how I ended up on the phone with Nancy Romeo.
7: I have made more pepperoni rolls than you can take a stick at.
5: (laughs) Nancy retired in 2010 after 20 years with the county, but she says pepperoni rolls were already on the menu when she arrived in 1990. She even called a former co-worker to make sure.
7: We were hired about the same time. Both of us agreed that they were making them before we both were hired.
5: And that was as much information as she could give me. I had one more lead, though. I called in a favor at the Charleston Gazette-Mail. They don't seem to do it anymore, but there was a time when the paper printed the Canal School's menu for each week. Using that, I thought maybe we could pinpoint the first reference of pepperoni rolls. Well, my connection checked the newspaper archive, and it turns out school menus didn't run in the paper back in the 80s and early 90s. But I did get the name of another retired school cook, Miss Ellen Carter. I found her in the kitchen of the Rand Community Center in eastern Kanawha County. She told me she didn't really have time for an interview, but agreed to let me hold a microphone near her while she made hot rolls. How many rolls are you going to make today?
9: This is going to be at 120. And I feed about 112 to 15, 115 people.
5: So they'll all be gone. <laughs> yeah.
9: And I make the rolls, and uh, um, the pepperoni rolls are made out of the same dough. So.
5: It turns out Miss Ellen has worked in this same kitchen for most of the last 50 years. She went to work for Rand Elementary in 1970 and stayed until 1999. The school shut down a few years later and became a community center. Miss Ellen then came back to cook for the center's senior nutrition program.
9: I'm 89 in October I'll be 90.
5: So if anyone would remember when the pepperoni rolls made their school lunch debut, I figured it'd be Miss Ellen.
9: I think it was early 80s uh, that they started making pepperoni rolls.
5: She couldn't give me a more exact time frame and she had no idea how the rolls came to be on school menus in the first place. But she does know the recipe probably got disseminated in a regular meeting that school cooks used to have.
9: Yeah, we used to have monthly meetings Atlanta, and we'd go to a different school, you know. We'd take a covered dish, we'd take a menu to the dish we made, and then they make us a copy of it. I got gobs of them, you know, so.
5: One thing she does know The way she was taught to make pepperoni rolls is not the way cooks make them now. Instead of shaping them individually, she'd get a big lump of dough rolled out flat.
9: And then you go back and roll it with a rolling pin.
5: She'd top it with cheese and pepperoni, then roll the whole thing into a log.
9: And then you cut it and roll your pepperoni rolls. And I don't know if anybody rolls them out like we do.
5: And Miss Ellen still makes a lot of pepperoni rolls. She recently got a call to make a thousand for a local high school, which was selling them as a fundraiser. She doesn't usually make them for her senior citizens, though turns out they're not huge fans
9: they they like a hot meal like today Reggie, I think honey, you probably take a meat loaf out and put it on uh, today they liked it, and then we're going to do a baked potato today and a salad, you know so.
5: Miss Ellen's senior citizens might not care much for pepperoni rolls, but I know some folks who do. Like
10: pepperoni rolls? Yeah.
5: They were going fast the day I visited Horace Mann Middle, but I managed to snag a few and tuck them away in my audio bag. So once I got my friends to open up about their fond pepperoni roll memories.
3: Oh, <gasps> Zach Harold.
5: I could surprise them with a taste of the past.
3: Yes, this is exactly what I remember. Yep, exactly. Oh, look at all that pepperoni. Oh my gosh, that's so good. And then like the cheese is all gooey and melty and like, you know, you can see that, you know, the cheese has a little bit of that pepperoni grease on it. It's divine.
1: Oh my gosh, that's a trip down memory lane, Zach. That is so good. Meat to cheese ratio is great. The cheese is melted, but not like lava and molten hot inside. Cooked long enough that the grease from the pepperonis is kind of soaked into the rest of the bread, but hasn't like burned it or overtaken it. This is great.
3: Well I got some for you. Okay. (gasps) Uh. Ah! Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Thank
5: you. Don't you know, don't make yourself sick. Oh,
3: I remember this. I'm pulling apart the outer layer of bread. And then you hit the spiral, and you can sort of pull that apart with your fingers. You see the pepperoni line. You can take it out a You are
5: practiced too. at this. Like
3: I, mean, I mean, I did it for 18 years. Like, it's or, coming back to you. Yeah, absolutely.
5: That is solid
3: cheese. It's solid cheese.
5: Memory is such a funny thing. The Canal County Schools Pepperoni Roll is beloved by generations of school kids at this point. And between me and the folks at the Canal Board Office, we probably talked to dozens of people trying to track down its origins. And the best we could come up with was a hazy timeline that puts us somewhere in the early to late 80s and a plausible but not exactly conclusive story about a school that ran out of pizza subs one day. This entire story unfolded within recent living memory, and those fragments are the best we can do. And yet Whitney and Tom and Brittany have these vivid memories that all came flooding back the instant they bit into one of those pepperoni rolls.
3: And I mean, here I am 34 years old, and I'm sitting here talking to you for a radio piece about pepperoni rolls because it's had such like a I don't know, a presence, I guess, in my life and in my, you know, I don't have very fond memories of school, but I do have fond memories of the school pepperoni rolls. And, I, you know, that, that seems kind of silly, but it's true.
5: I'm thinking those memories might be the more important ones. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia. You gave
0: me some. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see pictures of West Virginia pepperoni rolls, visit us online at wvpublic.org. For our next story, we head to Gardner's, Pennsylvania. This time for a food tradition that sounds like a bellyache to me. See, Gardner's is the halfway point on the Appalachian Trail. So thru-hikers celebrate the milestone with something called the Half-Gallon Challenge. That's right, a half-gallon of ice cream in one sitting. WITF's Rachel McDevitt takes us to the Pine Grove Furnace General Store to meet some of the challengers. Abiding by trail rules, we're only using the hiker's official trail names for the story.
2: Stop. The ice cream is here and early. Gotta look at the ice cream. Look at it come by. You are the man. It's a, I'm going to hold the door for you.
11: The Hershey's ice cream delivery man is a celebrity to the hikers waiting on the porch of the general store. Inside, they jostle around the freezers. Lego man wearing a camo bucket hat and a black kilt picks out maple walnut, and here's some surprising stats from Angie Simons behind the counter.
2: 3 minutes. Yeah, 3 minutes and 37 <laughs> seconds. I'm enjoying that. i I'm,
11: did you catch that? On the 4th of July, a hiker known as Squirt wolfed down his half-gallon in 3 minutes and 37 seconds.
2: I'll do the challenge, but I'm not killing myself.
11: Outside on the porch, the New Hampshire native digs in. This is a big moment.
2: Absolutely. Probably more the the symbolism than the ice cream, to be honest. But
11: At a picnic table, Magic Falcon is sporting blue sunglasses and a backwards cap as he peels the lid off his tub.
2: The smart one. Plain old vanilla
12: makes
11: that the smart
2: choice? It goes down easier. I don't have to be chewing on anything. (laughs) And basically becomes a milkshake at a certain point.
11: A dark-haired woman with bright freckles who goes by Milkweed is mixing up a trailside creamsicle with vanilla ice cream and orange sherbet. And so I believe sherbet, I don't know if this is cheating, but the first ingredient is not cream. It's water. (laughs) So you got to have a good flavor combo because it is just an exorbitant amount of food in one sitting to even attempt. Happy Feet, a wiry 24-year-old with big blue eyes, is nearing success, but feeling the effects.
2: Um, I felt better, honestly. Um, I was feeling pretty ill after the first one and a half quarts, uh, but I just kind of sat down and smoked a couple cigarettes and I felt fine.
11: Happy Feet says the challenge is a lot like the trail itself. Not bad, just a lot.
2: It feels like a part of the trail. Like, I wouldn't skip a 10-mile section. I wouldn't skip the half gallon of ice cream.
11: All the hikers are in a race of sorts to finish the trail before the last section closes in mid-October. On this warm day, they're also in a race to eat their ice cream before it becomes soup. Maple cream is dripping from Lego Man's bushy brown beard.
2: just so much easier as it melts. Um, I have... A Great fondness for maple. Um, one of my wonderful childhood memories is getting sap from trees. Um, young me got would order maple wallet. Oh, no. My spoon just broke in half. There's no video of this. No video, but immortalized in radio. Young me got would order maple wallet.
11: Lego man pauses, then grips his new, smaller spoon.
2: Uh, I will persist. Um,
11: The ice cream gives the hikers a chance to stop and reflect on the ground they've covered and why they're still hiking. Here's Milkweed. I don't know, I guess a challenge. So I have a son, he is eight years old. And I think the biggest thing I always got from adults as a kid was not what they would tell you, but the things that you saw them do. So the things that you saw them do that that seemed extraordinary, like they were superheroes. I'd want him to be proud of me. I want to be proud of me. Lego Man has been writing Hike the Appalachian Trail on his list of personal goals every year for the last 14. This year, his job finally gave him the time off to try.
2: This really shifts um, your perception of what you need um, and uh, what is enough, I think.
11: He says reaching the halfway point adds a little pressure to making the next three months the best they can be.
2: Already this far, wish I had taken more pictures of people and less pictures of the views. Um, One of the trail tautologies is the views will always be there, the people won't, so take more pictures of people.
11: Lego Man joins the other hikers hanging out on the general store's patio, where they're swapping stories from the woods and their lives back home. The trail is waiting for them. But right now, they're savoring the moment. In Pine Grove Furnace State Park, I'm Rachel McDevitt.
0: Off-trail, Lego Man goes by Alan Dwyer. Milkweed is known as Yvette Fernia, Happy Feet's name is Neil Postal, and Magic Falcon is Andrew Chang. Coming up, a lot of people hear the word snorkeling and think coral reefs and tropical fish. But what about snorkeling in a mountain stream?
6: Everything slows down and you just start looking. And at first you might not see anything But as you lay there and observe, all of a sudden you might see a
0: crayfish moving. That's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and 6 master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.
0: I don't know about y'all, but my favorite summer activity is to splash into mountain rivers and streams. You can tube, jump off a rope swing, or just wallow in the shallows. Some communities in North Carolina are now looking to add to that list. BPR's Lily Kanep has this story about a new snorkeling trail. When
13: you think of snorkeling this summer, you probably imagine the clear blue waters of the Caribbean. But snorkeling has made its way to western North Carolina. North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission is encouraging outdoor enthusiasts to try something new in the rivers and streams of the region through the Blue Ridge Snorkel Trail. BPR spoke to an aquatic biologist about what it's like to snorkel in a mountain stream. Andrea Leslie works for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission as the Mountain Habitat Conservation Coordinator. Snorkeling is a part of her job as an aquatic biologist. She describes the experience in a mountain stream as something quite different than what many people expect when they hear the word snorkeling.
6: It can be cold, (laughs) depending
13: on the stream. Aquatic biologists snorkel to learn about the behavior of fish and other aquatic animals. Leslie recommends looking out for her favorite fish, the darter.
6: Darters are, are very small fishes. They can be, you know, a couple inches long. They're beautiful when they have their breeding colors on in the spring and early summer. For example, there's one darter, it's called the tangerine darter. The male darter, who's the fancy gender, gets orange with these beautiful olive green kind of blotches on its side.
13: Blue Ridge Snorkel Trail, consists of 10 pilot sites in partnership with local conservation organizations, Mainspring Conservation Trust, Mountain True, and others. The sites are spread across the region from Graham and Swain counties to Buncombe and Wilkes counties.
6: It's all self-guided that each of the 10 sites we're going to have an educational sign that will have information on how to snorkel safely. It'll also, have pictures of let's say 10 to 12 different species of fishes and maybe mussels or crayfish that you're going to be able to see at that site at different times of the year.
13: Leslie says snorkeling is relaxing.
6: Everything slows down and you just start looking. And at first, you might not see anything, but as you lay there and observe, all of a sudden you might see a crayfish moving.
13: I'm Lily Knapp, BPR News.
0: Summer's the best time for ice cream and swimming in mountain creeks. But it's also a good time to take a road trip. Out on the roads of Appalachia, you never know what you'll see. Fireworks and fruit stands can pull motorists off the road, of course. But every once in a while, you pass something that makes you say, what was that? Like a giant basket towering over the edge of a town or a lighthouse in the middle of the mountains. Inside Appalachia's Xander Alloy took a trip to Chester, West Virginia, to learn the story behind a classic roadside attraction there, a souvenir stand known as the world's largest teapot. If you
12: drive west across the very tip of West Virginia's northern panhandle, right before Route 30 crosses the river into Ohio, you'll see what looks like a 14-foot tall red and white teapot.
10: You know, it's really whimsical and set out in this green grassy area and it's just, you know, it's really cute. That's
12: Lissa Ducharme. She and her friend Maria DeLuca are from California, and we're taking a road trip with another friend who lives in Pennsylvania. Once they found out about the landmark, DeLuca said, they added it to their itinerary.
3: Well, we had some time, and then we saw that there was the world's largest teapot, so of course we had to stop. And honestly, we're not disappointed.
12: Painted in large red letters across the wood and metal building are the words World's Largest Teapot. Underneath are five windows labeled souvenirs, postcards, candy, pop, and hot dogs. On a stone pillar off to the side sits another, smaller, metal cream pitcher marked with the year 1938.
8: Uh, We're very proud of it. It's our great icon for the city. A lot of people come from all over the United States to see the teapot and are just fascinated.
12: That's Susan Heinemann. She's the event coordinator for the city of Chester and caretaker of the teapot. As a child, Heinman spent a lot of time near the attraction.
8: I was totally fascinated by it, especially being a, a little kid and here's this huge teapot right next door to my grandma's. I loved to sit on the front steps of my grandparents' house and watch the people come and go over to teapot. And when I could buy money off my grandparents or my dad, uh, I would go over and get my penny candy from it. Just loved the teapot.
12: The teapot is a symbol of an area well-known for its ceramics industry. Just down the road in Newell is the headquarters of the iconic Fiesta Tableware Company. Across the river, East Liverpool, Ohio once manufactured half of all dinnerware produced in the U.S. William Devon, also known as Babe, owned a pottery outlet on West Virginia State Route 2, which passes through Chester. The story goes that back in 1938, he bought a giant barrel-shaped advertisement for Hire's Root Beer from Pennsylvania and had it hauled to the front of his store. It was cut in half, covered in sheet metal, and the handle, spout, and lid were added. The teapot served as a snack bar and souvenir stand, and to attract passing motorists to Devon's store. The smaller cream pitcher sat on the roof of the store itself. Throughout the decades, the store changed hands more than once. But apart from a couple of years during World War II, the teapot stayed open. Hindman worked there while she was in junior high in the 1960s.
8: They had a artware building in the back, and I would go in there and dust the glassware. I got a hot dog and a root beer, or I got a dollar.
12: But, she remembers, they sold more than just teacups to tourists.
8: Underneath... (laughs) The counters outside were like nude figurines and stuff, and a lot of the truck drivers would stop by there. They would buy cigarettes out of the teapot, and they would go buy one of these nude figurines to take wherever they were going. And, of course, being young, I wasn't allowed in there. But being a teenager, I peeked.
12: By the early 1980s, though, the teapot's time was over. In 1984, CNP Telephone purchased the land and tore down the pottery outlet. The teapot remained, but sat vacant. Three years later, the phone company agreed to donate the teapot to the city. It moved from place to place around town over the next several years. In 1990, it finally found its new home, a piece of land near the highway donated by the state. After a few false starts, the city of Chester and a group of volunteers completed its first full restoration later that year. But it wouldn't be until the early 2010s that Heinemann, along with the Parks Board, would develop a regular plan of maintenance and fundraising for the teapot. Today, the teapot's a well-known symbol of the area. It appears in work by artists from around the state and is featured as a location in the video game Fallout 76. Some people even choose to celebrate major life events there.
3: I think that it's just pretty cool that we're the first and only people ever to get married in front of the world's largest teapot.
12: I spoke with Abby Monte and her husband Zach Murray over the phone. They're both originally from East Liverpool, Ohio, but currently live in Chester. After a mix-up with their paperwork in Ohio, they had to scramble to get a marriage license over the border. They got one, but that meant the ceremony had to be performed in West Virginia.
2: It was kind of just a joke. (laughs) Um, Someone just said, you should go get married at the teapot, and then we were just like, yeah, let's do it.
3: About 10 of us, our closest friends and family, we all drove down at about 11 o'clock at night, and we had to have everybody turn on their high beams so that we could see. We walked down the aisle, said our vows, and got married in front of the teapot.
12: They say they plan to make the teapot a part of their future, too.
3: We'll probably make it a tradition to visit the teapot on our big anniversaries, whether we live around here or somewhere else.
12: You're welcome to walk up and take a look at the teapot any day you want. But to experience it in its full glory, you need to come on the second Saturday of August for Teapot Day. It's the one day of the year when it opens back up as a snack bar and sells unique souvenirs like t-shirts and fiesta wear ornaments. All that said, here's where I have to drop a bit of a bombshell. Since 2010, Chester West Virginia has in fact not been the home of the world's largest teapot. That distinction belongs to the Maitan Tea Museum in Guizhou Province in China, which stands over 240 feet tall. While the record may be gone, what remains is the history the teapot embodies. Even though it's moved down the roadways, it still stands as a monument to the town around it and a reminder of the region's industrial legacy.
8: The city of Chester's proud to have the teapot here, and everything else has been torn down,
12: historical. We still have our teapot. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Xander Alloy.
13: Pizza.
0: In Pittsburgh, Somali Bantu refugees began arriving from Kenyan camps in the early 2000s. Members of the group started the Moana Kuche farm, which includes a volunteer-run garden that produces food for the community and its neighbors. Working with the Allegheny Front, Tarina Hicks of Soul Pit Media visited the garden last September. One side of the garden
7: borders a busy street. On the other side is a neat row of houses. Hello, how are you? I'm Tarina, I'm the one uh,
14: that called you? Uh
7: Uh-huh. This evening, I enter through a gate in the fence near the greenhouse. I'm here to meet one of the garden's founders.
14: My name is Abdul Kadir Chirambo, and uh, I'm the executive director for Monacoche Farm.
7: So how long have you had this farm going here?
14: We've been working on it since 2017. And it's a city lot. And uh, we've been trying to help with the neighbors around here whenever the gate is open. And also we have a farm stand for four days. So and they can come and stop by, pick anything they want. And we do deliver sometimes to the doors where we feel like there are seniors around them.
7: So what type of agriculture
14: and plants do you uh, grow here? We grow uh, a lot of it, but we do have uh, up to six plants that's from Africa this year. And we're still catching up with uh, some of the plants like uh, cassava and uh, also boniara potato. It looks like the same as a sweet potato. That's something that the community eats every two days, and it's hard to find inside the city of Pittsburgh and if you find it, it causes a little more where like they miss that nutrition in their body and mostly it's affecting the seniors over 50 years old. When they arrive to, to the country, it becomes hard for them to jump uh, the food change inside the country of America. Are these
7: tomato plants that we're looking at here, what are these?
14: Uh, this is uh, cherry tomato and uh, uh, that's locally from the country. And we also have uh, beef tomato on that side.
7: The vines are crisscrossing the ground and it's hard to step without squashing them. But the ripening tomatoes are propped up by other plants, giving the space an organic feel. And I also see uh, another gentleman down here in a white shirt. Is he one of your helpers?
14: Uh, yeah, uh, Ula Moya. And uh, Ula Moya is uh, one of the representatives of the farm, or I will say the co-founder in uh, Monacocha too. He's the one who really teaches me the difference of the plant and also how to grow.
7: Hello, I'm Hello. Tarina. Yeah, good. Hey, uh, ula, so what is this that oh these are squash?
14: Yes.
7: Yellow <laughs> squash that we're looking at.
14: <laughs> and you've been out here how long with Me, this farm? Uh Three years more. And you enjoy doing what you do? And uh forasented waliado su Uh, Yes, this is uh, the only thing I know mostly coming from uh, back home. So this is your life's work? Uh, Yes. Awesome.
7: He's been working the entire time I've been here. We leave him to his weeding to see more of the garden.
14: This is eggplant. And uh, we provide eggplant, but it's not one big thing to eat inside the community. But uh, that's also the neighborhood around here, eat uh, eggplant.
7: What has been the response of the community? Were there people in the community that were saying that you're crazy for trying to
14: do this and get this started? Uh Inside uh, my community, yes there was where a time they thought, hey uh, I'm in America why will I farm which I did all of my life. I never benefited anything from it. but once they realize uh, how things increasing the cost of it and also the benefit they had where they can cut a leaf and drink, boil it. And it used to help them cover all of the blood pressure, diabetic. Because
7: everything that we need for these bodies, since we come from the earth, is in the earth. Yes. Some of the vegetables here are familiar to me. Others are not. I see a man with a green speckled vegetable that looks a lot like a medium-sized pumpkin.
14: Now what is that he's carrying? Uh, that's one of the plants that I was telling you. Uh, it's new in the city of Pispike. And uh, I don't know what they call in English, uh, but usually it looks like pumpkin.
7: Abdul Munambaje brings it over to us. What is that called? Do you know? No, not yet. <laughs>
14: <laughs> but we call boor in our language. We just, uh, anything that looks like pumpkin, we just call it pumpkin in our language.
7: And do you cook that, like, uh, do you
2: boil that? You cook it. I mean, the way you guys cook pumpkin is different. The way we was raised, it can be turned into a savory, basically. I would
7: like to see that when it's done, (laughs) (laughs) when you guys cook it. Munabaje says he's seen it, but hadn't done a lot of farming before. He grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya before he attended school in the U.S., So this garden is a way to stay in touch with his roots and maybe someday teach his young
15: son. This is what we came from, we are farmers.
7: Abdul Qadir Tarambo says it's also a way to give back to the people here who have welcomed the Somali Bantu community, especially the people in this neighborhood who have supported their work.
14: They always say grow bigger, make it bigger and even sustainable enough to run the whole year.
7: For the Allegheny Front, I'm Tarina
0: J. Hicks. The coal industry is dwindling. Kentucky and West Virginia have seen the largest concentration of coal mine and power plant closures in the country. But now there's a historic amount of federal funding available to help coal communities transition. WFPL's Ryan Van Velzer reports.
10: In the early 20th century, Consolidation Coal Company built the town of Jenkins, Kentucky.
4: Yeah, you know, it's, they, they call it city built on coal because, you know, they've mined all under under the town and and all around. Uh, you know, coal still in everybody's mind. Uh, I guess people let go of it a little different than others.
10: Mayor Todd DePriest says the mines the city relied on closed three decades ago. The coal taxes that funded city services have largely dried up. The population is a fraction of what it was when Bethlehem Steel, the last coal company, left.
4: Jenkins was sort of becoming a retirement community before Bethlehem left. It was sort of edging that way, and then after, that's that's pretty much where we're at.
10: Energy communities across the U.S., like Jenkins, are on the losing end of a decades-long decline in mining employment. But a historic amount of federal funding is now available to help revitalize them.
16: As part of Appalachia, has really been hard hit uh, when it comes to plant closures and coal mines. And Kentucky is still slated over the next 10 years or so to continue to see closures of plants and mines.
10: That's Brian Anderson. He leads a federal working group that President Joe Biden established to help coal communities across the country. And they've got a lot of funding.
16: Which right now uh, is just over $900 billion. I'm sorry, that's not, with a B? $900 billion with a B.
10: The funding largely comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Farmers can get grants and loans to build renewable energy systems. States are getting tens of millions in ongoing funding to clean up abandoned mine lands. Businesses can get tax credits for creating renewable energy jobs. And those are just a few examples.
16: We want to make sure that the communities where jobs might be displaced have the opportunity to see those investments and participate actively in the manufacturing sector that will underpin Uh, the coming energy transition. And so that's really, it, it comes down to not leaving these communities behind.
10: In May, nearly a dozen federal agencies convened at Kentucky's Pine Mountain State Resort Park to help state and local governments, nonprofits, and businesses understand how they can get some of that money. It was kind of like speed dating for government funding. People took their ideas to representatives from all these different government agencies looking for a good match.
3: Instead of you having to go and try to drink from the big fire hose that is known as Grants.gov, they're going to make it into a tiny little straw for you, okay?
10: The Appalachian Regional Commission was among the groups there to help facilitate between federal and local partners. Gail Manchin, who is married to West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, is federal co-chair for the commission. She says these meetings are critical to ensuring that all this federal funding actually goes to the communities in need.
8: You know, in most cases, it's getting that first grant. You know, once you get the first grant, then you kind of, you feel like you know what you're
10: doing. Back in the mayor's office in Jenkins, priest told me he's glad to see the federal government stepping in to help coal communities like his. Dealing with the government, trying to figure out all the different pots of money, that's an art he works at every day.
4: There's not going to be one thing that saves us, uh, but it's going to take us to save us. Uh, Nobody's going to come do it for us.
10: But that extra funding, he says, sure helps. I'm Ryan Van Velzer in Pineville.
0: We're talking a lot about summer on the show today. It's one of the best times of year. But let's face it, it can also be challenging for parents who still have to work, even though their kids are out on summer vacation. Many parents use screens or devices to keep their kids occupied. And that's part of why summer camps focus on the outdoors instead. Recently, the Allegheny Front's Justin Stewart visited a Pittsburgh camp that's trying to build confidence and an appreciation for nature. It's a warm Friday afternoon in Pittsburgh's Frick Park. People are riding
15: bikes and walking the trails. Children are sitting in the grass, talking and laughing, waiting to get picked up from camp. 13-year-old Violet Plessity is showing her mother a spoon that she whittled over the past week. We're all so happy to have been done with our, like, one project that we've been working on for so long. And then we get to eat ice cream with it, and every year that's just one of the best parts. This is Plessity's third year at the summer camp at Frick. Geared towards middle school age children, the emphasis is on helping kids learn basic survival skills and interacting with the environment, while building a sense of community between peers. Plessity likes it because she says it's laid back, and it forces her to get outside of the house. I'm never as excited to go outside, and I have to like get myself to go outside. But then when I'm outside, I'm always finding something to do, and I'm always happy being out there. The camp has been around for more than 20 years, and for the past 16 years, it's been geared as a survival camp, teaching kids skills like how to make spoons with things from nature, how to start a fire, and how to collect stream water. Surveys show that most American teenagers have cell phones and use them for up to nine hours a day. That's one reason why for some kids, being out in nature can feel completely foreign. Sometimes when they come, they're afraid. Patty Himes is a camp coordinator and naturalist educator.
8: And so we are not focused at all on like forcing them to enjoy nature. We let them be afraid and we stand there with them. We let them know that it's okay to be afraid and we hold their hands.
15: Heim says it's the kids that make the camp special for her. She sees them consider together how to be kind and inclusive and also watches them gain confidence in their abilities.
8: It's really gratifying to watch these students build skills and we want them to be able to be proud of something and it helps them to kind of center on something and focus on something. In addition, we hope they want to get outside. The more comfortable you are with being outside, the more you want to go out.
15: Camp counselor Ryan Malkin always loved being in nature and attending the camp in middle school reinforced that. Now at age 20, nature still brings out the kid in him.
3: There's a good spot in Shenley Park that I like to go to to look for frogs, some meadowy areas in this park that are beautiful. Or just like I like climbing trees. I
15: like rock climbing. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many teens reported high levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness and stress. Malkin thinks his love of nature and his comfort in it helped him during that time.
3: I really did spend a lot of time biking during, like, 2020, 2021. That was just, that was a really good thing for me.
15: Um, I met a lot of people in the, like, biking community that are really cool. Malkin hopes that kids at the camp also start to find comfort outdoors. And when they feel those record hot days and breathe in smoke from wildfires, they understand the need to protect nature. I
3: think that attending this camp gave me a greater appreciation for nature which as i've gotten older i've sort of channeled that into learning more about
15: climate change and like policy around that and stuff pelicity the 13 year old camper says she's seen that sometimes it just helps to step away from a screen and walk outside you never really get bored when you're outside when you do it's like in a good way like you can just lay down or like relax and just be outside but there's always another thing that you can do for the allegheny front I'm Justin Stewart.
0: At the end of our recent Summer Books episode, we asked listeners to share what they're reading. Well, we heard from Ed Pickle, who said he just finished Hill Women by Cassie Chambers. He says Hill Women is about leaving Appalachia, wrestling with Appalachian identity, and eventually returning. Here's what Ed writes. My takeaway from Hill Women is social problems in Appalachia will not be successfully addressed from the top down. Change begins with families, and family can take many forms families that are not afraid to let go of their children to let them leave if they've been raised by strong positive influencers they just may return and bring a fresh perspective to our current problems thanks for your recommendation ed that book is hill women by cassie chambers what are you reading this summer write us and let us know inside appalachia at wvpublic.org till next time Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, Michael Hurley, The Kinks, Paul McCartney, Sierra Farrell, Tyler Childers, Wizard Clip, and David Mayfield. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
4: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.